Hello, happy Black History Month, and welcome back to the Here Together podcast from the Philadelphia Orchestra. I'm Tori Marcioni, and this is a space to hear from artists and activists working hard to build a more equitable future. The music you just heard in the intro is an excerpt of the American folk song, Sally in the Garden, performed on banjo by our wonderful guest for this episode, Brandi Waller-Pace. But she's not only a gifted musician, she's also a dedicated educator and visionary leader. For more than a decade, Waller-Pace taught music to elementary schoolers in the Fort Worth Independent School District. Administrators there encouraged experimentation in the classroom, but figuring out what to try was up to her. Years of reading, googling, asking, discussing, working, and learning later, she felt ready for the next step, turning around to make the path she had just walked a little easier for those coming after her to navigate. So, in 2019, Waller-Pace founded Decolonizing the Music Room, a nonprofit that helps train teachers on how to mindfully center Black, Brown, Indigenous, and Asian perspectives in their classrooms, and decenter the dominant white Western ones. To be clear, this doesn't look like handing out worksheets and certified non-problematic song lists. Decolonizing is not a destination. It's a process. Kind of like a teach a man to fish idea. Um, I I really appreciate our organization being able to like take its name and really elaborate on that, but it's almost like decolonizing has kind of been in the realm of a lot of other teachery buzzwords. Decolonize the book, decolonize the song list, which um, kind of misses the point. Like in order to talk about what decolonizing could mean, which is just kind of a part of our approach, you have to know like what is colonization in the first place. What did it do? What are the ramifications of it? What does it mean to different racially minoritized groups? What does it mean to different people who are descendants of colonizing groups? And a lot of our work centers on just getting people into the headspace of taking a look in the first place. It's just really important for educators to understand that the level of rigor that is generally applied to um, white Western European art music, classical music, we need to apply that level of rigor plus critical thought of all of that to all the other traditions and all the other dynamics that make up society and educational systems and understand how broad ranging it is so that teachers aren't constantly coming back for um, a prescribed thing that makes them feel like they're doing something, which is why you don't say decolonized, that's not a thing. Decolonizing in the approach is a process that you're going through. And we talk about anti-racist work and we talk about, um, you know, patriarchy, racism, um, cisgenderism, just all of these things that are really huge parts of essentially what is a a white supremacist um, societal system that we're dealing with. Absolutely. That was one of my favorite things as I was writing up the description of what you do that, yeah, part of it is decentering whiteness and part of it is centering all of these other things. And I think sometimes we can get like getting caught up in the decolonizing, decentering whiteness can then <laughs> almost replicate the problem of like still focusing on the white. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. Our mission has changed very slightly over time. And it used to say decentering whiteness first. 
And I got to a point where I was like, hmm, I'm still putting whiteness first, aren't I? We're still talking about whiteness a lot. But what are we actually trying to do is, like you said, center the other stuff. And so it's it's really important to always evaluate, like, are we are we actually decentering whiteness or are we putting so much attention on whiteness and what it does? Like, we always have to name it, right? But we don't always have to center it. It's like the stuff we're swimming in, right? So it, it's just a constant thing. Well, one of the things that makes me think of is that on the one hand, it's a great opportunity to start thinking this way and be like, wow, I'm, I have so much responsibility for the choices that I make for what I bring into my classroom. But on the other hand, I know teachers are really busy <laughs> and sometimes it's easy to just sort of receive what's always been done before. I'm thinking of the song like Ring Around the Rosie. And I learned at some point that that was about the plague but like, interestingly, that's actually apocryphal. It's not about the plague. Really? But I didn't learn until maybe two years ago that Ring Around the Rosie is not really that. What I, have is to, like, I have to send something. I have to send the citation where I actually found, found out it wasn't what I thought it was. Because I spent years, like, this is the actual background. I got to find the citation for you. <laughs> oh, wow. It's like, I, I'm sitting here thinking I discovered it and I've figured out the hidden meaning. And then there's even another layer. And that's like a silly song that you sing and fall down to, right? So mm-hmm. how there's you, always something. <laughs> yeah. How do you, like, deal with that feeling of like, oh, man, there's always more. So, you know, kind of that whole lifelong learner idea, knowing that you're perpetually in a space of learning a new thing is really important. And as educators, we talk about um, building like growth mindsets in children and having to understand their learning as they grow. But then sometimes teachers forget that we're always going to learn something new. We haven't gotten to a stopping point. And um, sometimes the the new thing might make us feel really silly. I think when we talk about race, because um, the nonprofit um, has a, a racial lens focus. I, I talk to people who are not racially minoritized, who um, not black, brown, indigenous, and Asian. Like I, I talk to white educators and they um, they express that concern about feeling that discomfort, about feeling that embarrassment. And so I try to reframe that for them. And I think, um, you know, like you, you kind of build that muscle as a black person in, in US society, I I was never not allowed to deal with that, right? And so there's a level of building that we just kind of have to do that we need to normalize for all educators. But of course, beyond that is just like who wants to be embarrassed and who wants to find out they did something um, wrong because it's it's very humbling and we care about students and we never want to hear we caused harm. So I think the combination of understanding that some people don't have the choice of building the muscle, but then collectively, like we just have to normalize like oops I was wrong sorry this thing that I held as as a capital T truth no longer is and I look back in my own practice I feel like gosh like every three months I'm like what was I even thinking I feel like I'll listen to this podcast and go what (laughs) there's always something I'm finding out well that's comforting (laughs) (laughs) so what was your experience like as a student Did you feel seen and cared for? Was there a disconnect between the curriculum and what maybe you were learning at home? Um, Or did it all feel quote unquote normal until you got a little older? Yeah, I don't know if there 
was much I would have questioned until I got older. My parents maybe brought up just a little bit here and there, but now like looking back as an adult, I can I can give name to more stuff. When I was in first grade, I started participating in an integration program. And so I, I grew up in Atlanta and I grew up in um, the Southwest suburbs of Atlanta. And so I was bused to the North side of the County, which is more, more affluent and predominantly white. And I spent from first grade to eighth grade in schools there. So there was a difference. There were some things that were very observable. So I, I did, gifted classes and all that stuff, whatever. Um, But there are very few black kids in those classes compared to general ed. So like in middle school, you'd have your, what would now be, I guess, pre-AP or something. And they were all up on a higher floor. And then the general ed classes in my grades were on the bottom floor. And so I'd be one of the few black people on the upper floor and then you go down to the bottom floor and that's where most of the black kids who were bust in were from and it's stuff like that that I remember noticing um and you know we know that it has nothing to do with actual intelligence of children so we are able to now look more at what's behind that um music specific I love my teachers they were so great I I love music anyway um I felt very cared about and loved in in the music classroom I don't recall feeling like my particular cultural background was really part of the music classroom. I don't remember as a child having a problem about it. I just remember as a child having the feeling of, oh, I'm learning about all these new things outside of my own experience. And I think it would have been cool to also feel like I was learning with something that included my own experience, too. Now, looking back. But, um, yeah, I felt very cared for and I felt like I got a really good background. And I just wonder if on top of that um, or amongst that, I guess there there would have been the type of stuff that I talk about now. How much more of a difference would it have made? In fact, in high school, I started dancing pretty seriously alongside my choral, my choral activities. I went to an arts high school And looking back, I mean, I love dancing. I absolutely love it. But that was also the place where I was getting like, like predominantly black teachers talking about all this history with it and just kind of all this, you know, in high school, I wasn't thinking about it like that. But now I look back and I'm like, oh, I just remember feeling an extra affirmation there. And aside from loving dance, I bet that had to do with why. I particularly liked it where I was at that point. And I've been, I recall going to dance in other places where the teachers didn't behave like that and still enjoying the dance, but seeing how much worse it felt to deal with the actual teachers. Interesting. When when you were in the situation in middle school, being one of the only Black students going upstairs, was that socially alienating for you? I think so. I actually have one particular memory. I can't remember which class it was, but um, I was in the class and there was one other black girl in the class. And we, we still keep in touch now, but we never were great friends. We just were the only two black kids in the class. And I remember we would go to lunch and we would always be just alone at a table during lunch. Not once did any child come try to sit with us. And it was so weird at the time. I just was like, well, you know, we're here, whatever. 
But as an adult, I'm like, gosh, that's really, that's kind of a big deal <laughs> looking back at it. <laughs> and then how was it when you're getting back on the bus to your neighborhood with people who aren't in your classes? Were you making friendships? Only a very little bit. I, I don't want to put this on the integration situation, but I was a very awkward kid. I have no idea how it would have gone had I been on my side of town either. But um, it's like a lot of loneliness in that experience. And of course, you know, when your bus stands, like an hour long ride and it's the whole thing. Even stuff that kids don't think about, like, you know, am I going to have an accident on this bus because my trip is so long? Am I going to get home half an hour later? And now it's dark because of traffic. Just like all this stuff that um, even for my own children is not at all anything they can relate to. clip of the Philadelphia Orchestra performing Blues Symphony, composed by legendary trumpeter Wynton Marsalis. The influence of Marsalis's jazz roots can be clearly heard throughout that piece, which is why I'm using it to transition into mentioning that Brandy Waller-Pace studied jazz in college, specifically at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Something you should know about Howard in addition to the fact that it's a prestigious research institution whose notable alumni include Thurgood Marshall, Kamala Harris, Toni Morrison, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and Sean P. Diddy Puff Daddy Combs, is that Howard is an HBCU. That means historically black college or university. It's a classification held by 101 private and public institutions of higher learning in the United States. All of them were established between the end of the Civil War and the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And though students of all races have always been admitted, these schools were founded for the express purpose of serving African Americans. Howard has been around since 1867. For me, there's just nothing that beats, like, being surrounded by, like, a billion different types of blackness. And the thing for me being, like, I can be, like, the lazy kid or the anxious kid or the talented kid or whatever, but I'm not the black kid, right? Like, it's just all the other stuff. <laughs> Are you going to encourage your kids to go to an HBCU as well? Specifically Howard. <laughs> Love it. I, uh, I had a friend growing up who, interestingly, was one of the only black girls in my honors classes who our senior year got super into the idea of going to Spelman, the HBCU women's college. And she was wearing Spelman gear and talking all about it all the time. And we were just kind of like, oh, okay. (laughs) But now, years down the road, I'm like, oh, that's why you wanted to go there and be a part of that. Yeah, and it's so interesting. I had, you know, people kind of put HBCUs, not people, misinformed people, put HBCUs like in a lower tier. Um, You know, I've seen and heard some communication where it was like, these are are the real schools and these are HBCUs as if it's not 
um, the level of rigor. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Like even just looking at Howard, the amount of scholars and artists and like the research that has come out of that school. Um, it's, it's really amazing. And to know that, you know, first of all, a lot of people don't know what an HBCU is, which is a whole other issue. But then for them to not understand that, um, black things aren't lesser things, which is, is implicitly reinforced a lot. Is that like black things or specific? Or, you know, even more generally, things that are not predominantly white, there's a lesserness to them. And so, yeah, I just, I, I kind of, I encounter that sometimes when, when people speak about HBCUs or when HBCU grads talk about the way they've been treated when they say the school they went to. Wow. It's very interesting. I talk to people who are like, oh, that's ridiculous. Or people who are completely clueless. There doesn't seem to be much of an in-between. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because when I hear that some, like, don't they call Howard, like, the Black Harvard? It's that, it's the Mecca. That's like calling um, Chevalier de Saint-Georges the, um, the Black Mozart. He's oh. just Saint-Georges. <laughs> fair. Absolutely fair. Oh, Oops. Well, no time like the present to build our learning muscles, huh? I must say, I was impressed with how skillfully and elegantly Brandy educated me there. Anyway, here's some Chevalier St. George, Symphony No. 2, performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra. So I came across an interview that you did a while back and you were talking about giving up some song or another. And you were like, look, there's nothing to hold on to here. There's no reason not to cut this. There are so many other ways that we can accomplish whatever learning this was supposed to achieve. Goodbye. And I'm wondering if in the process of your decolonizing work, if there has been anything that was hard to get rid of that you were attached to. So I will say... There have been things in my work that I've been attached to. 
I don't want to call it hard, though. I feel like that's thinking about it in a different way, right? Because we all we always have our own stuff to contend with and our own stuff to process. But if something is more difficult than something else, that's for me. That's not for the people who it benefits to take it out, right? So I can say that sometimes I have to grapple, but um, I like the attention to be on you know, what's the cool thing I can use here instead? What's the really great history I learned or like whatever whatever else is there, right? I love that. That's a great way to think about it. So what are you motivated by? Are you motivated by anger or love or guilt or hope? Some combination? Uh, all of the above, depending on, <laughs> on what it is. I think um, just like speaking from from the viewpoint of a a black person in America, a black woman specifically in America, it's easy to be motivated by anger. I like acknowledging that that's super valid. Um, Audre Lorde has this essay called The Uses of Anger. And I I think I like cried when I was reading it the first time because we're we're taught to, to feel like Anger means that you're doing something wrong or it means your point isn't valid or it means that whatever you're doing is not well done. But there are uses for that thing, right? And so I feel like we we can do that with all the emotions and this idea that, you know, everything's got to be love and joy and hope and all this kind of stuff is like, but I feel more feelings than that. The things we're talking about make me feel a lot more feelings than that. And so for me... Naming it and acknowledging it and validating it is really important and just making sure I maintain some kind of balance because what I don't want to happen is be motivated like, you know, I've had a slight or I've had um, an offense or a harm or a trauma that I need to acknowledge. But that when that is the only thing that guides my work, then some of my own autonomy is gone, right? But if I say, like, this is my choice, this is what I'm doing, and it grew out of being infuriated at this racism or whatever, like, it's it's channeled a different way. But sometimes, like, if people want to go off, like, some things are to be raged at, and that that's totally valid. Anyway, yeah, so motivated by all the things, and they're all super valid. Yeah, I definitely agree. Rather than trying to tamp down any negative emotions, can you use them as fuel? Can you convert it into something else? Mm -hmm. And can you give yourself like an emotional break, right? So like I can be super angry and like the anger is in my body because the emotions are like the whole of you is experiencing them. But then can I let my body rest and still acknowledge the anger and still work, but not in a way where like I'm physically burning out at the same time? Yeah. And then that's my last question. Um, How have you learned to take care of yourself to maintain that balance? Are there particular activities you do or warning signs that you have to look out for? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm still learning a lot. Um, A warning sign for me is I'm checking social media way more than I should be. And I'm like, what am I trying to escape from right now? Or I find myself like sitting and staring off like what <laughs> what's happening. So I'm still learning. Um, the biggest thing that is effective is knowing what boundaries are, knowing where they are for me. And over and over and over 
again, like validating for myself that it's okay to draw them. And then being in relationship with people who support that and who do that themselves. So like my deputy director, Lorelai Batiste Long is, is amazing. And we, we talk about these kind of things too, because they are very much part of the work, the, the mods and the Facebook group, people we collaborate with, people we talk to, um, people whose work we admire that we just, you know, can communicate with. Like we talk about this kind of stuff and we reinforce the idea that the boundaries are valid. So yeah. And then, um, Trying to make sure I I make music. My biggest fear about all the work during this time is that I'll look up and be like, I haven't touched an instrument in forever. I haven't created in forever. And music is such a big part of of all of this. So if I um, make sure to protect that connection, that helps serve me as well. And then um, just finding space to be alone and silent. (laughs) <laughs> That's a big one. That's a big one. Very Especially big in one. a house of kids, which I will Sorry. get back to you now. Thank you so much for your time. I You're really so welcome. Um, <laughs> anything else that is on the horizon that you wanted to share at this moment? Or? Ooh, big thing. Next month, March 13th, um, Fort Worth African American Roots Music Festival. I started um, to plan this festival out of interactions and and talks with the Black Roots music community. And it was supposed to happen last October, obviously. Things got shut down. We moved it to March. Again, things have still been um, not quite safe enough to have people travel and come in person. So we're doing um, an online festival and it is officially part of DTMR programming. And it's going to be some amazing Black Roots musicians who come together and play and talk about the the music and really show people how um, intertwined Black history and Black musical traditions are with this American roots music that, you know, has, has had that part obscured to a pretty great degree. And I'm super excited about it. As am I. You can also catch Brandy Waller-Pace at the Folk Alliance International Conference. On February 25th, she's interviewing Dr. Bettina Love, author of We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom. In addition to all this, Waller-Pace is pursuing her PhD in music education at the University of North Texas and has a five-year plan to expand decolonizing the music room's programming and impact, making change at an administrative level while also making trainings more accessible to individual teachers. You can keep up with them at decolonizingthemusicroom.com or on Twitter or Facebook. That'll all be linked in the description box, along with a link to that Audra Lord essay and the real story behind Ring Around the Rosie. And with that, we've reached the end of another episode. Thank you so much for joining us. And please remember to like, subscribe, comment, rate, review, share, and tune back in next month for another episode of Here Together. <laughs> <laughs>